You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to episode eight of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. I'm your host and producer, Donnie L. Betts. Black Radio Days bring you a special podcast today. My interview with author of Enrique's Journey, Sonia Nazario. For more than 20 years now, Destination Freedom Black Radio Days picked up where the first nationwide African-American radio drama left off. The original boundary-breaking program produced in Chicago by Richard Durham more than 60 years ago walked a daring line between reform and revolution. It illuminated important yet largely unknown chapters in the history of human rights and demonstrated how radio played its part in the struggle for social change. However, as McCarthyism and anti-communism tightened its grip on America broadcasting, the radio program was shut down in 1950. Our current show, now branded Black Radio Days, draws on the classic archives of the original Destination Freedom program. Since 1998, we've continued the tradition of showcasing the extraordinary lives of great African Americans and other people of color, past and present. In our upcoming season, we will examine the intersection of law enforcement and communities of color by exploring the complex issues of police shooting, immigration, and gender bias. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by Bonfee Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, and Arts and Society. For more information, please visit NoCredits.com and click on Destination Freedom. This is a follow-up to Enrique's journey. I interview with Sonia Nazario, who is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning work, Enrique's Journey. And now, my interview with Sonia Nazario. Sonia, welcome to the program. Thank you, Donnie. I'm happy to be here. So let's first, let's talk about you a little bit. Now, you have a very unique background, um, born in Wisconsin, correct? And, right. Yes, <laughs> grew up there. And then uh, your parents were really um, two um, very incredible people. And you as well, has, I think, not fallen too far from the tree. We want to talk a little bit about your, your upbringing and your early days. Yeah, well, I guess it's, uh, in the end, it's no wonder I write about migrants and, and people fleeing harm and refugees. My, my parents on both sides have been fleeing harm for about 100 years. My mm. mother was born in Poland and left Poland in the 1930s, Jewish, uh, to go to Argentina. Um, and her family members who didn't leave were, uh, at least 60 of them were killed in the Holocaust. Uh, and my father was born in Syria, and uh, his 
family left Syria fleeing Christian persecution in predominantly Muslim countries. So um, I went to Argentina. And then uh, they came to the U.S. as the military was increasingly, uh, there were a lot of coups in the 50s in Argentina, and my father worked at a university. The first thing they would shut down when they had a coup was the university. So he found it very hard to do his work and came here, and I, I was born. I'm the only one in my family uh, born in the United States. And mm. uh, I, I, I lived through uh, fear as well. Uh, my, my, um, when my father died when I was 13, my mother decided to take us back to live in Argentina, and it was as the dirty war there was starting, and the military was about to take power, and over the coming few years they would uh, disappear, uh, murder 30,000 people. So I lived that terror myself and had family members uh, abducted and tortured, had a close family friend who uh, was was murdered, 16 years old. And so I understand um, at a very kind of gut level the need to flee. So at a very early age, too, you, you realize this. And a lot of people still maybe in, from our audience may not be uh, familiar with the so-called dirty war there in Argentina. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You talk about people disappearing, more than 30,000 people disappearing or being killed during this time. Who was the leader at that time? So, um, so this was um, a time when the military in Argentina took power, and uh, they were, they believed they were fighting uh, leftists who were trying to take control in Argentina. It was a fairly small leftist movement. And they viewed it as a cancer that had to be cut out of the um, country. And so um, they started uh, abducting uh, professors, journalists, uh, teachers, anyone that was advocating for a more just society, it didn't take much for them to target you. They thought people who had beards were lefties. So, uh, and people would just disappear and be tortured and uh, then um, be shot or be drugged with a powerful anesthetic and, and uh, pushed out of helicopters into the ocean mm. uh, to drown and be eaten by the fishes. And so this was a reign of terror that um, was from 1976 until 1982 when uh, dem- a democracy returned to Argentina. So I lived through about a year and a half of that. When, um, when I walked to school, I walked with my best friend in case one of us got snatched. The military would roam around in unmarked cars just picking people up. And so I always walked with my best friend in case one of us got grabbed. The other one could run and tell our parents, what had happened. I remember the day we took all of our family books uh, into the backyard and burned them into a huge uh, pile because uh, set it on fire because books like Alice in Wonderland, Freud, were considered subversive and could get you jailed. So um, we lived through about a year and a half of this. I was walking one day with my mother and I saw a pool of blood on the sidewalk near where we lived in Buenos Aires. And I asked her what had happened, and she said that two journalists were murdered. And I asked her why, and she said, well, those journalists were trying to tell the truth about what's going on in this country. And what I realized in that instant was that people didn't really understand the magnitude of what was happening around them and that you can't have a democracy without a strong press that's willing to hold people in power accountable. 
uh, the military wanted one narrative of what was going on in that country, and, and, and it viewed any competing narratives as threatening. And so uh, that sounds somewhat familiar these days sometimes yes. in the United States. Uh, and so they, they would kill journalists who they thought were telling a narrative that didn't coincide with what they viewed uh, the narrative to be. So it was a terrifying time, and, um, and it, it really showed me the, the need uh, that people have. Uh, we have 71 million people now displaced in the world, forcibly displaced. Um, they've left their homes because of uh, violence and persecution, 26 million refugees, and uh, really uh, our refugee system was set up after World War II because during World War II we turned back a ship with 900 Jews on board and said, you can't dock at U.S. shores. We're going to send you back to Germany. And hundreds of those Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. And uh, we didn't let Anne Frank's family into the United States. And to atone for that moral stain of what we had done during World War II of keeping the Jews out, we, the U.S. became a leader in the modern-day refugee movement of saying, um, we, we will not send people back to their deaths. And yet I believe that this is what we are doing now with Central Americans, that are, uh, come, these folks are coming from some of the most violent countries in the world right now. And that irony is definitely, hopefully is not lost in our audience that that was done at that time to atone for that, that act that happened at that time. Now, one of the things that I read about your journalism, and I know about your journalism, is the fact that you like to immerse yourself in the story that you're telling. What was the inspiration for Enrique's journey in particular? I mean, you have won awards for your, your writing about uh, kids who uh, go hungry with, in, in the school system. You've written about um, kids and, and their parents who are addicts and that sort of thing. What was the inspiration for Enrique's journey in particular? Well, I live in Los Angeles, and about 20 years ago, I had a woman who would clean my house a couple of times a month, and I asked her one morning if she was thinking about having any more children and she was from Guatemala, and I thought she just had one young boy, and she started sobbing, and she told me about these four children I knew nothing about that she had left behind in Guatemala. She was a single mom. Her husband, she said, had left her for another woman, and she could only feed them in Guatemala once a day. And at night, she said her kids would cry out to her with hunger, and she showed me that morning how she would gently coax her kids to roll over in bed at night, and she said, I would tell them, sleep face down so your stomach doesn't growl so much. And she said she had left these four kids in Guatemala and come north to work in the U.S., and that she hadn't seen them, her children, in 12 years. And I was just stunned. I couldn't imagine what kind of desperation it would take for a mother to uh, leave her kids not and and. Um, my house cleaner then, Katamin, had no idea when or if she would see these children again. But what I learned was that there were millions of mothers like her who had come from Mexico and Central America and had left their children behind thinking, you know, this will be one or two years, this separation. But life here in the U.S. is a lot tougher than, <laughs> than they envision, and it stretches these separations to five or ten years or more, and these kids would set off on their own to come and find them. And when I started looking at this in the year 2000, there were about 48,000 children, a small army of children 
coming to the U.S. alone each year with no parent by their side, uh, crossing Mexico, the only way they, they could with little or no money, which is gripping onto the tops and sides of these freight trains and what is really a modern-day odyssey that these children make, facing mm-hmm. gangsters along the way and corrupt cops and bandits and this cruel cast of characters that are trying to ro- rob them, rape them, beat them, deport them. Uh, and so I want to show what that journey is like for these children. Um, since, since that time, in the ensuing 20 years, especially in the last five, six years, the story has changed. These children are still coming to find their moms in the U.S., but the primary thing pushing them out of their countries is this violence that has really um, grown enormously in the last five, six, seven years in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, where the gangs really control these neighborhoods. Many of the gangs are reporting to uh, narcotics cartels that are increasingly moving, dr- were increasingly moving drugs uh, through Central America to the U.S., where the largest consumer of illegal drugs in the world. And this was generating enormous violence in these neighborhoods. Uh, boys at the age of 10, 11, being forcibly recruited into these gangs, told you'll, you will join or we will kill your whole family. Girls being told you, you will be um, the, the, the girlfriend of the gang leader in the neighborhood or we'll wipe out your whole family. And, and so the reasons driving these children to leave uh, changed in recent years. They're still coming for their moms, like Enrique was, but they're also being pushed out of these very violent neighborhoods. They're leaving to stay alive. And so that's, um, that's the story that I've told more recently in my columns in the New York Times is what is happening in these countries and that really to slow the flow of migrants, the only thing that will do that, because we just had a caravan leave again uh, from Honduras a few days ago, the only thing that will slow that flow is dealing with the root causes of this enormous violence and corruption and uh, lack of economic development in these three countries in Central America. So uh, let's kind of follow up on that. So uh, recently, a lot of the aid um, from the U.S. has been started to be cut off to these countries because of the violence and it says supporting the drug cartels as versus uh, actually doing aid to the to the country. What are your thoughts on that? And then we'll get back to um, um, what's happening today uh, and the, the new Enriques and, and everybody else that's, that's coming in the new caravan. Well, you know, our, our, our solutions to the, pro- to the issue of migration have not worked. We are spending $23 billion a year on a border industrial complex and, I mean, you could ask the Chinese. They built the mother of all walls. It, is, hmm. it didn't keep the Mongols out. And so what, what you really, uh, you know, when people are facing uh, imminent death, when a gang leader in your neighborhood says to a business, you have to pay a war tax in the next 24 hours or I'm going to kill you, or someone says you have to join a gang in the tw- next 24 hours or I'm going to kill you, you're not thinking about what you're going to face Two months from now, when you reach the U.S.-Mexico border, you're thinking about getting out of Dodge. And, uh, you know, your house is on fire, and you're trying to figure out how to get out of that house. Uh, and so um, we've, we've uh, built walls that studies show people um, 
can get past if they try repeatedly. We know that two-thirds of the people uh, who have become unlawful in the United States in the last decade didn't cross a, a, over a wall. They came with a visa to the U.S., and they overstayed their visa, so a wall will do nothing to stop those folks. Um, so um, what I did in 2016 was I went to Honduras to the most violent neighborhood in the murder capital of the world in San Pedro Sula, Honduras, which is where these caravans are leaving from. Yes. And I, I, I looked at, uh, you know, in 2015, the Congress recognizing that we have to deal with what's pushing people out of these places, doubled foreign aid, and I wanted to see if it was working. And so I went to this very violent neighborhood where six gangs completely controlled it, bodies littered the street in the, in the mornings. Uh, one day, the gang was playing soccer with the head of someone they had just decapitated uh, in broad daylight because they pay off the cops. Uh, and we went in, the U.S. went into this neighborhood and we funded outreach centers where kids could go to get away from the gangs. And we funded a program where we go into the schools and we identify kids who have the nine risk factors of going into gangs. And we get uh, kids who have half of those risk factors, we get them into family counseling. And it reduces 77% their odds of engaging in, um, in crime or abusing drugs or alcohol. But, but most importantly, we went after the killers in these neighborhoods. Um, in Honduras, 96% of killers get away with it. There's no conviction because um, if you step forward as a witness, the gang will kill you tomorrow, so no one does. And so we funded this nonprofit that over months would convince people, to witnesses to testify under a black burqa, like they do in mafia trials in Italy. Hmm. And using these techniques, um, we saw a, a, a huge increase in convictions. More than half of homicides were getting convictions. And it's, in two years, the homicide rate in that neighborhood dropped 62%. In the worst place, in the murder capital of the world. And it cut the number of children who are fleeing this neighborhood to the U.S. in half. Um, so I believe, and some on the left strongly disagree with me because they say, you know, anything the U.S. does in Central America is bad, and I fully understand, I have a master's in Latin American studies, uh, how bad our history has been in some of these countries, especially Honduras, which we treated as the original banana republic. I mean, if United Fruit didn't like a president who was elected in a company from the U.S., United Fruit didn't like a president elected in Honduras, you know, they sent in the U.S. government to change that president. Yes. So I, I fully get the history there. But I argue that if we're doing something that works and is good, why don't we get our government to do more of that? And instead, President Trump has basically cut almost all foreign aid, cut these programs, and the group, the nonprofit group that was doing that work, uh, getting witnesses to testify, just cut their stuff, staff by more than half in Honduras because of the lack of funding. So I believe one thing we should do is press our government to increase foreign aid. It's way cheaper to spend $100 million, like we were doing in Honduras on these programs that were starting to work, versus billions of dollars on these migrants once they arrive at our southern uh, border. And so I believe that we should be doing much more of this. We, we need a targeted approach. We need a brain trust that figures out what are the best evidence-based 
programs that actually work, and we need accountability. We need, we need to show that these programs are working. But I think there is a way to do this. Well, it sounds like if you listen to the people who are there uh, and it directly impacts, that's how the programs can work. I mean, a lot of times, like you said, you come in and you have ideas about what you think might work. But if the people there on the ground say this will work for us, this is what we need, then that's who we need to listen to. I think that's where a lot of the fault lies with a lot of organizations that do that. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing that. I'd heard about this program, but I hadn't heard it from anyone who actually was on ground zero like you have been. Uh, I wanted to ask you, too. Now, a lot of reporting you do is very dangerous. You just talked about you just went to the most (laughs) murder capital of the world. Yeah. I mean, I I understand. I have a pretty good case of PTSD. And Uh, uh, last year I went to Honduras for five weeks. And um, one of the stories I was writing about was why so many women are fleeing and the very high rates of killing of women, femicides, and how when women are murdered, four in ten are mutilated in a way that goes far beyond what's needed to kill them. Uh, in the neighborhood I was in, it was it's called Choloma. It's the third largest city in Honduras. Um, the women described that women would be stripped down like they were a chicken and uh, the different parts were fa- found in different parts of the neighborhood. And in this neighborhood, two women had, had literally been skinned alive. And so I came back with nightmares of being mm-hmm. skinned alive and had to uh, uh, go back to therapy for, for those nightmares. So uh, I, I often, I, I believe in witnessing, and I believe that by taking my readers to... Uh, what is happening and putting them on the front lines of these stories, hopefully those stories are more powerful and motivate people to read to the end and maybe get involved in this fight, which I think is, is, a, is a fight we all need to be in right now. We have basically shut down asylum. We have had, um, we have, have had a dozen different executive actions. Through executive fiat, this president has changed our laws, and that's something that only Congress should be able to do, and basically shut the door to people fleeing harm, and shut the door to refugees. And last October, our country did not take one refugee from around the world at a time when we have more people displaced than at any time since the massive displacement that followed World War II. We have shut our doors to people who are running for safety, asking us for safety, and I believe that that's wrong, and I don't believe that that's in keeping from what the survey showed what most Americans want us to do. They want us to do some of this. Let's talk in the last few minutes that we have, about five minutes left in our time. Um, you have two organizations that you support, and we'll talk about it detention centers here in Colorado and California, so on and so forth. But one of the uh, organizations that you're supporting on the board of is Kids in Need of Defense. Um, Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes. I think children who come here alone, um, you know, they've suffered so much trauma in their home countries and on this very difficult journey here and now um, getting into the United States because um, you know, basically, we're not letting people come into the U.S. and ask for asylum. And even if they, the few who do get in and ask for asylum, we're kicking them back into Mexico, into very lawless towns on the Mexican side of the border, where they're being asked to wait for 
months, even years, uh, while their court hearings in the U.S. progress. So these children arrive with, with a lot of uh, trauma. I, I believe the two most important things for these kids is therapy and a lawyer so they don't get sent back to that harm that they've just fled. And uh, Kids in Need of Defense was started a decade ago by Microsoft and Angelina Jolie, and they asked me when they started to join the board. And I, I thought what was most appalling was seeing a seven-year-old boy in immigration court. You know, most of these kids can't afford a lawyer, and they're not entitled to a government-funded lawyer. Uh, no immigrant is, even a child. And so if you can't afford a lawyer, you have to stand before that judge. What If you're uh, seven years old, if you're uh, five years old, there are toddlers that stand before these judges by themselves, and they're being expected to um, to present their own complex legal asylum case. In 2017, we had 24 babies stand in court alone. Uh, hmm. Children who were, you know, uh, babies who were abandoned by the smuggler at the border, or they were in some way unaccompanied when they entered the United States. And that child was expected to do this on their own, get expert witnesses and get police reports from corrupt police departments four right. countries away and fill out dozens of forms in English when they may only even uh, not speak at all or speak Spanish. So this just seemed like an incredible sham. I could not believe that this was happening in our judicial system. And Kids in Need of Defense recruits, we have recruited about 50,000 pro bono lawyers, um, you know, I, I used to not have a fond relationship with lawyers as a journalist because <laughs> you ask them what color are your eyes, and they say, you know, I have to get back to you in two weeks, and even then they don't tell you. But I've, I've met now, I, I've become a big fan of lawyers because I've met these incredible lawyers who, uh, you know, they know nothing about immigration law, right. but uh, they're transactional lawyers or they are real estate lawyers or tax lawyers. And yet they agree to represent a ten-year-old child, and um, and they win ninety-eight percent of their cases. So the thing mm -hmm. is that if you have a lawyer, uh, seven in ten of these kids win their cases. They are allowed to stay here legally, but without a lawyer, nine in ten of them lose their cases. Right. So They're having that right lawyer, back. we mm -hmm. all know that having a lawyer by your side in in court is critical. And um, even more so for a child. So I, I have been a, a big proponent of kids in need of defense and any way that uh, your listeners can help uh, translating or um, donating with their treasure or if they know lawyer friends, we have offices in seven cities or across the U.S. So it would be great if people could get involved. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Sonia Nazario, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, uh, author of the book, Enrique's Journey, and support also a production that's coming up uh, the 22nd of February at El Centro Suchacho uh, called Destination of Freedom, uh, Enrique's Journey, parts three and four. We uh, presented parts one and two in November this past year. Uh, hope that you'll be able to listen in. Hope you can attend at Suchacho. We get information at uh, nocredits.com uh, at kgnu.org. Uh, Sonia, it's just been incredible speaking with you. I wish we had more time, and I probably we'll probably have to come back and do a part two of your interview as well. But again, thank you for allowing us to do this production, allowing us to be part of your journey, and just keep doing the strong, incredible 
incredible work that you're doing. And just for the listeners out there as well, too, we'll be supporting an organization called Casa de Paz, uh, who does work with the detention center in Aurora, Colorado, getting uh, aid to the children there. So, Sonia, That's again, wonderful. Yeah. And thank you so much, Donnie, for doing this production. Thank you so much. And we'll speak again in the near future. Okay. Thank okay. You. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Destination Freedom. Please subscribe to our podcast at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook at NoCreditsProductionLLC.com, Instagram, and Twitter at Donnie Betts and at NoCreditsProductionLLC or at Black Radio Days. I'm Donnie L. Betts. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.